You know, today with television, internet, technology, we've seen and experienced more than probably any previous generation. And so it takes more to wow us than maybe it took for our parents or uh, generations before us. <coughs> As you grow older, <coughs> you'll sometimes even become more disillusioned. <coughs> Excuse me. You just don't marvel at things anymore uh, the way you did as a child. Remember when you were a little child, everything wowed you. I mean, everything amazed you. I've got a granddaughter that thinks when I do this, I'm gone. And when I do this, I'm there again. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it didn't take anything to, to uh, amaze her or to wow her. And then as we get older, sometimes this just passes away. I know uh, we, as we look at the Bible, read the New Testament, we all know that Jesus amazed people. All throughout his ministry, he uh, marveled people and amazed them. Luke tells us that over and over. In fact, five times he alone he uses the word astonished in the book of Luke because he's constantly talking about how folks are amazed at what they see. His power over disease, his power over death, his power over demons, over the devil, and no one ever spoke the way that Jesus spoke either. The way that he preached and the authority he spoke with, uh, people were amazed when they heard this and uh, as they saw what he did. No one ever acted the way Jesus acted. He made people wonder all the time. They were amazed. No surprise, he's God. I mean, we can expect that Jesus would amaze people. What other response would you expect about the Son of God? You know, he stilled a storm in Matthew chapter 8. And when he showed his power over the wind and the sea, the disciples, the Bible says, were amazed in themselves and wondered. I mean, wouldn't you be? Uh, when uh, they said in verse 27, What manner of man is this, that the wind and the waves obey him? And there in Matthew chapter 9, where Jesus confronted a demon-possessed man, uh, he cast the demons out, and the people were amazed as they saw it. And they said in verse 33, it was never so seen in Israel. In Mark 5.20, it says that what Jesus did made all men marvel. Jesus even amazed Pilate with what he didn't do in uh, Mark chapter 15 verse 5. Now, Luke wants us to understand how amazing Jesus is. And he says in chapter 4 verse 22, and all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth, and they said, Is this not Joseph's son? Now this might be one of the reasons folks were so amazed and wondered so much at Jesus, because they thought they knew him. This was somebody local. This was Joseph's son, the son of the carpenter. And they couldn't figure out how he could be the one they think they knew. Their neighbor, the son of the carpenter. In Luke chapter 20 and verse 26, Folks tried to catch him in something he was saying and, and uh, tried to trick him. The Pharisees always did that. And they were amazed always at his answers eh, because he always stumped the scribes and the Pharisees. Everyone was amazed by Jesus and rightly so because of who he was and is. What is surprising, this is what you don't see often in the Bible, when Jesus is amazed at a man. And I want to introduce you to this man today. Because this, today we're going to look at a man that actually amazed Jesus. That's a turn of events. It's expected that Jesus would amaze people. But now we see 
someone amaze him. Let's read verse number 6 of Luke chapter number 7. The Bible says, Then Jesus went with them, and when he was now yet... Uh, now, let, let's go back just a little bit. Let's go to verse 3. This is talking about a certain centurion. Uh, in verse 2, his servant who was dear to him was ready to die. Verse 3, When they heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when he came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying, This is now the, the Jews, the leaders. This is not the centurion. It's the Jewish leaders that he was worthy for whom he should do this. For he loveth our nation, and hath built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was now not far from the house, and the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Whether neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but to say in a word that my servant shall be healed. So he says, I didn't feel worthy to go see you, and I certainly don't feel worthy that you should come see me. Verse number 8, For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers, and I say unto one, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh, and to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. You see that? He marveled at him. And turned about and said to the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Forward today in faith. We're talking about faith. Father, thank you for this day. We thank you for each and every one that's here. I pray that you would remove the distractions, help us to focus on what you want us to see in your word. And Lord, may we leave here a little stronger in our faith than when we came. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A Roman centurion was in charge of a hundred soldiers. In the Gospels, Roman centurions were often presented as men of quality character. And this one was no different. He was a sterling example. Now the Jews, for obvious reasons, had very little love for the Romans in general. Yet this man was special to them. He loved the Jewish people in Capernaum. He got along with them. He even built them a synagogue. He was obviously the kind of man that had sympathy for those around him. He had a servant who was sick and near death. And the Bible says he loved his servant and he did not want him to die. Now this was a time when servants were expendable. Uh, there was no expectation to love a servant or to create a relationship with him. They were property. They were nothing. And yet he loved his servant and he... Uh, this shows the heart of this man. And so a strange thing happens. In fact, to my knowledge, this never happens any other time in the Bible. The Jewish leaders go to Jesus and ask a request for a Gentile. You don't see this anywhere else because, first of all, the Jewish leaders had no use for Jesus in the first place, and they had no use for Gentiles, and so this is a unique situation. <clears throat> they don't believe in Jesus, but they come to him and ask him for a favor for the centurion. Now, I want you to see something that's fascinating, because you'll see the difference between the unbelieving Jewish leaders, and you'll see the difference between uh, the centurion and those people. Luke shows the difference here in verse 4 and verse 6. Look, look, six. look at verse 4. So they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy. This is what the Jewish leaders come to Jesus. Hey, listen, we normally wouldn't do this. We certainly wouldn't do this for a, 
or for a Gentile and certainly not a Roman, but this man's worthy of your help. We'd like for you to do what you can for him. That's what they said to Jesus. Then, if you look at verse, basically he's, he's, uh, he, he's deserving of the miracle. It's interesting. <laughs> First of all, it's a terribly selfish thing to say. They call him deserving. Why? Because of how he treats them. This is the way they thought. I mean, the world revolved around me, right? And so, because he treated us good, he's worthy. Have you ever noticed how you judge other people on what they think of you? So, somebody doesn't like you or somebody says something bad about you, they're a terrible person. Well, they might be a good person, just not like you, you know what I'm saying? But uh, here, this is how, they, uh, th this is how they, he treats them here and they want to think he's worthy because of it. Secondly, it was religion thinking. Now, unbelievers and religious people always come on the basis of merit. So they are talking about him being worthy. He's done good things. He's done things that to help people, and so he is worthy. They approach Christ, unbelievers and religious people, approach Christ on the, based uh, on their good works because of who they are. Now, the centurion had a totally different view of himself. Look at what he said in verse number 6. For I am not worthy. Now, isn't that backwards from what normally is? I talk to people once in a while, and they say, I am a good person. I uh, do enough good works. I think I'll go to heaven when I die because of my good life. I have talked to people, no lie, I've talked to people in jail who said that, and I've talked to people in prison who have said that. I was uh, like Monopoly. I was just visiting. Understand. All right? I wasn't in there another way. I just want everybody to be clear on that. Uh, but uh, I went, used to do a prison ministry and, and uh, guys who've done horrible things still think they're pretty good. And so a lot of times people think they are good in their own eyes but somebody else might look at them and say ha! He thinks he's worthy? He's not worthy at all. Here was just the opposite. They said He's worthy. He's a good man. He deserves what you can give him, Jesus. The centurion said, Lord, I'm not even worthy to come talk to you, much less have you do something for me. Totally different attitude. Now, we could say the religious leaders didn't believe because they certainly didn't trust in Christ the way they should have. They didn't have faith in Jesus and what he could do. And this is true, but if you look at it from a different angle, they did have faith. They had a lot of faith. They just had faith in their own morals. They had faith in themselves. That's why they said the centurion, uh, he deserves healing, spiritual healing. He deserves what the Lord can do for him. Why? Because of how he treats us. So by default, certainly we deserve it as well. That's how, the, that's how they thought. Because they, were, uh, they had faith in their own moral goodness. They believed that you could merit God's healing in your life by your good works. Now, there's a principle that I want you to see here. You can never disbelieve in God without, at the same time, just as deeply believing in something else. I'll say that again. You cannot disbelieve in God while not at the same time equally believing in something else. Can I tell you today, everybody worships something. Everybody. It's in the heart of man. You might worship you might, you might say, oh no, I'm a secularist. I don't worship anything. Oh yes, you worship self, you worship money, you worship fame. You worship something, I promise you. 
And if you don't believe in God or you don't believe in Jesus, it's not because you don't believe. You just don't have any spiritual faith. You just have faith in something else. And so today in talking about faith, I want you to think about this in the manner of thinking that everybody has faith. They just put it in different places. Put it in different things. We want to make sure our faith is directed to the right place. Everybody has faith in something. Now, look at the humility in how he talked to Jesus. The Romans were not known for their humility. The Romans, especially to Jewish subjects, he was over them. <coughs> he was their conqueror, as you could say. Imagine a Roman officer telling a Jewish rabbi, I'm unworthy to have you enter my house. That's an amazing thing. But the characteristic that impressed Jesus most about him was not his humility, but he mentioned specifically his faith. There's only one other person Jesus said was a person of great faith, and that was the woman who he delivered her daughter uh, from a demon in Matthew chapter 15. It's worth noting that both of these miracles were uh, done from a distance, and both of them were done for Gentiles. God does that for us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13 too. The Bible says, but now... Uh, in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes afar off made nigh by the blood of Christ. What he's saying is one time you were way distance off, but through the blood of Christ, I've brought you near to myself. Hey, this, com this centurion's faith here was remarkable. He was a Gentile, pagan background. He was a Roman soldier. He was trained to be self-sufficient. Maybe he had heard about Jesus' healing from a nobleman whose, whose son Jesus healed just a short time before this in John chapter 4. Uh, I want you to notice in verse number 8 here the word also. For I also am a man set under authority. You see, this man saw a parallel between the way that he commanded soldiers and the way that Jesus commanded diseases. Both the centurion and Jesus were under authority. Being a soldier... He realized that Jesus was under authority and could also exercise authority. Diseases had to obey Jesus the way soldiers obeyed him. He had seen it. People had talked about it. It was well known. All they had to do, the centurion and Jesus, say the word, and it happened. What he's saying here to him, I know you're not just another miracle worker. I realize you have a lot of power. And you can heal from where you are. You don't have to come to where the person is you're healing. That's some outstanding faith for him. Now, then he gives this illustration, for I also am a man set under authority. Notice he does not say he's a man with authority. Was he? Absolutely. The centurions are like the backbone of the Roman army. But over the centurions, uh, they were accountable to the generals. The generals then were directly accountable to the emperor. So the centurion is basically saying, I have no authority in myself, but I have this relationship with the king, and his power flows through me. It seems then that his faith came just a little bit short here in realizing that Jesus is God himself. Uh, because it seems like he might not quite grasp that. The implication is, I'm not sure if this authority is yours, Jesus, but you have a relationship to God that allows it. And even though he maybe got a little short of recognizing who Jesus is, Jesus heals his servant anyway. Why? Because the principle is the same as the man in Mark chapter 9. 
uh, he had a possessed son. He was begging Jesus to heal his son. And Jesus said this to him, All things are possible to him that believeth. Do you remember what the man said in response to Jesus? He cries out in tears and said, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. The man is saying, I'm trying to believe. I want to believe, but I'm filled with doubts. You ever been there? Yeah. And Jesus heals him anyway. Praise the Lord for that. Can I encourage you with something today? It's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that matters. It is not the perfection of your faith, but the direction of your faith that matters. Uh, of course, we all want our faith to grow. And, and it will grow, I promise you, if you follow this principle of redirecting your faith from other places Directing them right on Jesus Christ. See, we only create frustration as we trust in things that we can see. I'll say it a little later, but I'll say it right now too. You're going to live life one of two ways. You're going to live by faith or you're going to live by sight. Most people live by sight. God asks us to live by faith. But if you live by sight and you only trust in things you see, it'll create a frustration in your life. Now, I'm told I've never had a pet impala, but I am told that the African impala can jump to a height of over 10 feet high and cover a distance for more than 30 feet. Is that about right, Brother Jerry, the ones you've missed? He never missed one, so I, I don't think that counts for him. But I'm told that these magnificent creatures can be kept in an enclosure in a zoo with a three-foot wall. Because the animals will not jump if they cannot see where their feet will fall. Now I want to apply this because things hold us back all the time. What holds you back? Faith is the ability to trust what you cannot see. Because your trust isn't in a what, your trust is in a who. That's the difference. And sometimes we have to jump. <laughs> And we don't know where we're going to end up, but we just have to have faith and obey. What is faith? Faith is obedience, really. That's all really faith is, is I'll obey you, God, even though I don't exactly know how it's going to turn out. I struggled, you see, and I'm almost embarrassed to admit this to you because I shouldn't have struggled with this, but I've struggled for years in my own personal life with tithing. You know why I struggle with tithing? Lack of faith. Just a lack of faith. That's all it is. Faith is obedience. Faith is saying to God, Lord, you know, I had 95 children at home and uh, bills uh, out the wazoo, didn't know how I'm going to pay all these different things. And so uh, tithing was a struggle. Look, it's a real thing. I understand. It's tough. And so understand that I, I, I have to look at that saying, Lord, I don't know how you're going to do what you said you're going to do. I don't know how you're going to provide for me if I give this, then this is going to be robbed. And if I give this tithe, then I won't be able to pay this bill over here. And God, I can't see the ground on the other side of the fence. I want to jump. I want to obey. But I can't see where I'm going to land. And so, it's a hard thing to obey. It requires some faith. What's holding you back today, friend? Listen, do not get frustrated at your little faith that you have in your life. Just direct what you have 
faith can free you from the flimsy enclosure of life that allows only fear to entrap you. Let uh, have faith in God. How much faith did the man need to get his son healed? Just enough faith to call on Jesus. That's all. Hey, I don't know who you are. I'm struggling to believe, but will you heal my son? How much did the centurion need? Just enough to call on Jesus. His faith wasn't perfected, but he had enough uh, to get the job done. I think of the hymn, Just as I am, though tossed about with many a conflict, many a doubt, fightings and fears within without, but the key is, O Lamb of God, I come. Come anyway, without, despite the fears and the fightings and the doubts. Just have faith on Him. Psalm fifty fifteen. And call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. What tremendous faith this man exhibited. And in verse 9 it says that Jesus marveled. That's something, isn't it? He was amazed at this man because of what he saw. What an awesome thing to have said about you. By the way, can I tell you that Jesus is still in command of what's overcoming you today. He's still in charge of that. God is bigger than your problems. Now you might say today, boy, I wish I could make Jesus marvel. Now wait a minute, Let me before we go too far into that type of thinking, you might make Jesus marvel and that could be a good thing or a bad thing. Let me explain. <clears throat> There's only two times in the New Testament that it says Jesus marveled. One time it was Nazareth. He's preaching and he's doing miracles and the Bible says they did not believe. This was found in Mark chapter 6 and Jesus marveled at the lack of belief the citizens of Nazareth. He found it astounding that people could see so much yet be blinded and not believe. He, he, they had every reason to believe. There was no reason not to. And yet they didn't. And Jesus marveled. The other time Jesus marveled is found right here in our text, what we just read, Luke chapter 7. So one of these areas, he marveled at one group because of their lack of faith. And he marveled at this man because of his level of faith. So I'm going to ask you today, friend, do Pete, does Jesus marvel in your life at your lack of faith or does he marvel at your level of faith? I want him to marvel at my level of faith. If this Roman, with his very little spiritual instruction, had that kind of faith in God's word, how much greater ought our faith to be? We have the living word of God in our hands. We are able to read the very mind of God through his book. Uh, yet we're guilty of having no faith, like Jesus said in Mark 4.40. You know when he said that? To the disciples, after they woke Jesus up from a nap, just because there was a storm and their lives were in danger. They woke Jesus up. He says, you have no faith. I mean, looking at it, I'd think it's kind of a good reason to wake somebody up, but, but uh, he called having no faith. Or having little faith, like Matthew 14.31, when Peter started to sink, uh, he was walking on the water and he started to sink and he says, Lord, save me. You ever do a study in the Bible about short prayers? That's one of them right there. You don't have time for a long pontification if you're sinking in the water, amen? So he says, Lord, save me. And Jesus saved him. Then he said, you have little faith. Our prayer ought to be as the apostles in Luke 17, 5, when they said, Lord, increase our faith. That's when Jesus told them this, when you have the faith as a grain of a mustard seed. You might say unto the sycamine tree, be thou plucked up by the root, and be thou planted by the sea, and it shall obey you. 
In Matthew 17, 20, the Bible says, if you have the faith of a mountain, you'll be able to move a mustard seed. That's not, I was just testing you. All right, make sure some of you are nodding. Yes, I've read that. Yes, that's not what the Bible says. Let me show you a picture up here. The Bible says, if you have faith as a grain of a mustard seed, you shall say unto this mountain, remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove. Can I tell you today, friend, what, how much faith does it take to move mountains? It takes this much right there. See the picture? Grain of a mustard seed. Oh, preacher, I don't have much faith. Just directed to the right person. We all have faith. Every one of us demonstrate faith every day of our life. Of all the people Jesus met during his time here on earth, only a few impressed him. What was it about this man that made Jesus stop and marvel? What attributes are found in the centurion's life that we can imitate? I, uh, I don't know about you, but I would like to be a man that amazes Jesus. Wouldn't you? Let's talk about it real quickly here. Three quick, quick areas. He was a man of great generosity. With the financial uncertainty that's facing us these days, generous people are harder and harder to find. Those whose focus are on their own personal needs have a hard time putting their focus on the needs of others as well. The greatest joy, though, comes not from seeking a blessing, but from being a blessing. And everyone can experience the joy and blessing of generosity because every one of us have something of ourselves to give. We ought to be generous people. The generosity here to his servant. The, the centurion was a Roman. He had no business being attached to a servant. That was no better than a, a mule or an animal. And yet he was because he had a heart. and He was a good man and he had character. He was willing to humble himself, not only to do something about a servant, but to go to a Jew about a servant. He was... Generous to his servant. We, even though his social status was far above him, he still cared deeply for him. God, God's word tells us that we ought to love the lowly and even the unlovely. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, and be patient toward all men. The Lord is always pleased when we reach out and help someone in need. When's the last time that you went out of your way to express concern for someone who's not in your peer group or who might not even to up be in your social uh, circle or your social status? It's a challenge to believers today to allow people to be dear unto us as this man was to, his servant was to him. The centurion did everything he could to care for this man under his station. He also uh, demonstrated generosity to the Jews. Far from restricting the centurion's authority or, or resenting it, they, they honored him, the Jews did. He showed love to them corporately, uh, to the group, and individually. <coughs> we see the centurion was the type of man who loved his neighbors, even though they weren't like him. Even though they were from a different religion, he still loved them. It's an amazing thing to think that this man was willing to build a synagogue for people who were in subjection to him, and yet he did this for them. He could have taken the attitude, I don't owe you anything, and he didn't. He was, and could have forced them to serve him, but he didn't, he served them. You can tell a lot about a character of a man in how he treats those who can do nothing for him. And say that again. 
or a woman, you can tell a lot of character about, a, about the character of a person in how they treat people who can do nothing for them. And this was him. He had compassion. Compassion is the quality of showing kindness or favor, being gracious, having pity and mercy. In the Bible, God is described as being a compassionate father. Psalm 103, 13, As a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. Jesus Christ exemplified God's compassion in his preaching and healing. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. The Bible talks about his concern for the lostness of humanity. He came to a city in Luke 19.41, and as he came near, he beheld the city and he wept over it. He finally uh, gave himself as a sacrifice on the cross, Romans 5.8, but God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We are to demonstrate this love and compassion for others as well. John 13, 34. It's your memory verse on the back of your bulletin this week. Uh, Jesus said, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, even so love you one another. Now you say, I just can't love that person. You're a disobedient Christian. The Bible tells us we are to love our neighbors and we are to love our enemies. Probably because they're the same person. Could be. We're to love both of them. Doesn't matter. You don't know how they treated me. That's baloney. The Bible doesn't allow for that. It just says love them. Love one another. Biblical compassion is not just a feeling. It is an appropriate action based on that feeling. May, many people claim to have compassion. Oh, I'm a compassionate person. But they do nothing for the lost or needy around them. This man had great generosity. And he showed it. Secondly, he had great humility. Now, this is one of the single most important principles that a Christian can learn is that God is always pleased with humility. Humility. We don't like to be humble. When we are humble, we like to tell people that we are humble. Right? We, uh, you've heard the guy who wrote the book, Ten Ways to Be as Humble as I Am. All right? Uh, nobody buys that book. Amen? Uh, or the pastor who was so humble, his people gave him a pin that said, world's most humble pastor. And he, it was such an honor for him. And so the next week, though, the church took it away from him because he wore it. You see, as soon as we start telling people we're humble, we're no longer humble. But humility is something that God always honors. James chapter 4, verse 6, But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, uh, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. 1 Peter 5, 5, be clothed with humility. Why? Because God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. This centurion acted with extreme humility as a servant. Mark Twain has some zingers, and one of the things he said is, the fellow who blows his horn the loudest is usually in the biggest fog. Noise doesn't mean anything great. Humility. We need to have humility. Now, he said here in verse 3 and verse 7, he's not worthy to come to Jesus. The centurion knew that Jesus had the answer to his problem. Christ had the answers then. Christ still has the answers today, amen? Uh, we see here that the centurion beseeched Jesus to come and heal his servant. Beseech means to desire, to entreat, to pray. Literally, he was begging Christ to come heal his servant, but he did not go to Jesus himself. 
He did not feel worthy to come into His presence. Uh, believers today, listen to me today. We need to remember this. None of us are worthy to come into the presence of, Jesus, of the Lord Himself. None of us are worthy to have Him do all He promises to do for us. The Bible says in Hebrews 4.16, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. But can I tell you that that is only because of what Jesus Christ has done for you and me. Not because we're worthy. We better remember that as we come to the throne of grace. Not worthy of Jesus to come to him, verses 6 and 7. Jesus decided to go to his house because he wouldn't come to him, so he's going to go to the centurion's house. Three things about him. The centurion's recognition that Jesus had the ability to heal his servant. That's good. He recognized Jesus was able. The centurion's realization that God didn't have to be present to do the miracle. That was pretty big faith there too. And then his regard for his own unworthiness. All three of those principles apply to us today. We had better understand that God can do what needs to be done. He's able. Amen? That's step one. We better understand that. We won't have faith in a God we don't think is able, and God is able. He's bigger than your problems. He's been around longer than your enemy. He can handle these things. He is able. Secondly, we need to submit to his schedule and his methodology. We never presume that we deserve any of his blessings. Matthew 28, 18, And Jesus came and spoke unto them, saying, All power is given to me in heaven and earth. He's able. Trust him. He had great generosity. He had great humility. And finally, he had great faith. Jesus said so time after time in Scripture. We see people who are willing to walk by faith. Hebrews 11, 1 and 2, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for by it the elders obtained a good report. And then the writer begins who, with a roll call. He starts down the line. He talks about Abel. He talks about Noah. He talks about Abraham. He talks about Enoch and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and on and on other names as well. These were examples of people who saw, who we can see that their faith was more than just a belief. They put it into action. You've seen the age-old example that we use with a chair. I can believe and state all day long that I believe that chair will hold me. I can tell everybody, I can write a paper on it, I can write a book on it, I can pontificate on it and, and try to convince people, yes, that chair can hold me, but I really don't ever start to demonstrate faith until I plop myself down into the chair. Now, I'm exercising my faith. It's one thing to believe, it's another thing to do. In fact, I could stand up here and uh, I could preach all day, I mentioned tithing a while ago, I could preach on that all day uh, and not do it, that wouldn't be uh, demonstrating any faith just to know it. By the way, I do tithe, amen. Uh, but uh, you, you have uh, the difference between proclaiming something and then putting your faith into it. That's why the Bible says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Why? Because God wants a lot more than people that will just get around and talk about it. He wants people to do it. That requires faith. He had great faith. The Bible says we can't please God if we're not living by faith. And everyone knows how to have faith. We do it all the time, countless ways. When I get in a car and turn on the ignition key, I have faith my car will start. You do too when you do that. For the Larry drives a Toyota has to have a lot of faith that his car will start. When I sit in a chair, I have faith that it won't collapse. 
Faith, somebody said, is like Wi-Fi. It's invisible, but it has the power to connect you to what you need. Have faith. We exercise faith in people and things every day of our life. So when Jesus asks us to have faith in him, don't miss this, friend. When he asks us to have faith in him, he's only asking us to do what's natural for us already. We have faith in all kinds of things. But he wants us to put our faith in him instead of things that are fallible. He says, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up treasures in heaven. He said, on earth, thieves can come get it. On earth, it can rust, it can corrupt, uh, it can be taken, it can be stolen. He said, in heaven, it's safe forevermore. He didn't say, don't lay up treasure. He just said, change the location of your bank account. That's what he's saying. Okay, the centurion showed faith. Verse 7, he believed in the power of the spoken word of God. We have the same word of God that spoke the very universe into existence. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Great faith shown in verse 7, then great faith seen in verse 9. Jesus recognized the faith of this man. He called attention to it, and everyone there recognized it as well. Can I tell you today, friend, that if we live by faith, God will use us to have an impact in the lives of others. As the centurion did so many centuries ago, we need to pour out our faith on Christ to meet all of our needs. Psalm verse 20, uh, chapter 20, verse 7, the Bible says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses. Now, Today, it would be some trust in SUVs, amen, and the fuel industry. But we will remember the name of the Lord our God. So the, the worldly faith might change. That faith never does. A good acrostic. I like acrostics sometimes. Faith, F-A-I-T-H. Write this down if you want to. It's a good acrostic. Forwarding all issues to heaven. Faith, forwarding all issues to heaven. There's things that come into your life sometimes, God, I don't get it. I got more bills than I got money. I got more, uh, I got more month than I have money. I don't know how I'm going to do it. And uh, what, is, what does faith do? It kind of forwards those issues on to heaven. It says, hey, uh, what did Jesus say? Casting all your cares upon him, for he careth for you. Uh, that doesn't mean we don't be responsible, but we trust God in it. Today we ask the same question that Jesus asked in Luke 8.25 when he said to his disciples, where is your faith? That is the question I ask you today, where is your faith? Is God amazed by you? Does he marvel when he looks at your life? Maybe he marvels like he did to the folks in Nazareth. Man, I've proven a hundred times I'll take care of them and they still don't believe me. They still don't trust in me. I'm marveling at him. Or maybe he looks at you and says, Wow, what a man of faith. I want to make him marvel in a good way. More than ever before, we need Christians today who will show the world what this uh, centurion showed. A spirit of generosity, a life of humility, and a walk of faith. Do you want to be different for Christ? That's a good start right there. Work on those things. A spirit of generosity, a life of humility, and a walk of faith. These qualities will bring amazement to a world who is often selfish, proud, and arrogant. 
when they see that difference in you, it'll make an impact. But much more than that, what if we could make the Savior marvel? I don't, I mean, I don't mind if, if I might make someone in the world marvel, but I want to make Christ marvel, amen? I want to make Him be proud of my life. I want Him to be proud of your life. I want us to be people of faith. I want us to put our, the, the faith that we already exhibit in a thousand different ways, I want us to redirect that faith and put it in Jesus Christ because He is the eternal one. He is the all-knowing one. He's the one that can see your future, your past, and your present. He's the one that knows what's best for you. Let's just believe Him and let's obey Him. Let's have faith. Every head bowed, every eye closed.